this is Everything is Interesting, your science show right here on X-Ray FM. I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. This marks the penultimate episode in our season about loops. Joining us in studio today is our good friend, Ed Curtis. Hey, Ed. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, we're excited that you're here. So it just didn't seem fitting to finish a series on loops without having brought up one of the most pondered over loop-related topics, time. For thousands of years, probably, humans have wondered, theorized, even built entire religions around the question, does time run forward in a linear fashion, you know, from the past, the present, and onwards forever into the future, or does it cycle back on itself in one great never-ending loop? Well, it's a serious, mysterious question. I mean, it has to be linear, though. I mean, that... That's how you feel? Yeah, I've all, I'm, I'm only doing everything once. Yeah? You think? Ah. No, it's... Linear. It feels that way. I will give you that. It certainly feels that way. But we don't really know. Yeah. You know, I think it's pretty safe to say we don't actually have a very good definition of what time is. Right. What, what would you say if, if someone was like, hey, Ed, what's time? Not what's the time, but what's time? That 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 is beyond the scope of my brain. You I wouldn't be able to do it, that. would you? I think that's one of those like if you think that you can define time, you've got an ego problem. <laughs> right. It's one of those like if you really know anything, you know that you know nothing. Yes. Kind of situations. Yeah. yeah. No. Good answer, Ed. In his theory of relativity, Einstein defines time as the fourth dimension. You know, beyond the three dimensions that define our space. But but. What, is, what does that mean exactly? It sounds know. nice. It's, yeah, it's easier to say than it is to right. picture. Is it some, does it say that time has some sort of physical substance, that time is some kind of place, a space, an idea? I mean, does time even exist at all, or is it just something that humans have constructed? <laughs> it's a seriously big question. And hey, spoiler alert, we're not going to be able to answer any of them in this episode, or really possibly ever. Which I guess doesn't really matter if you don't think time exists, but if you do, <laughs> if you do, then uh, sorry. It's yeah, what be is a, ever? It's gonna be a is long ever now. Time. Is ever later? No one knows. Doesn't matter if we get there because it doesn't exist. It's gonna be a heavy, possibly. heavy, heavy topic. But we can get a little better handle on the picture by taking a step back and examining what we do know. First, we know that there are loops and cycles within our human lives that play a big part in how we perceive the passing of time. We also know that our brains and even our individual cells have mechanisms that allow us to track the passing of time, even when we're not looking at a clock. Thanks to Einstein again, we can say that we know that time and mass are at least intricately related to each other. And we know that the rate at which time passes isn't always perceived the same by everyone or over all situations. So over the course of the next two episodes, with the help of our guest, Ed Curtis... I am here to help. ...we are going to try to get a grip on these ideas, in the hopes that by exploring what we do know, we can enrich our contemplation of what we don't know. So where to begin? Okay, well, let's start by taking a look at how we humans are even able to perceive the passing of time in the first place. And it turns out, if you can believe it, it has a lot to do with loops. So, Ed... I have to ask you, have you ever gone and done one of those sensory deprivation float tank thingies? I have actually had a gift card for one in my wallet for about half a decade. Oh. Um, and those things aren't cheap either. Nah. I should probably do it, but I think, if I'm being honest, I think I'm a little scared of it. Yeah, you've heard oh, of them, though. you shouldn't be. They're so cool. Which which flotation place do you have a gift certificate to? Uh, the, one, the one on Hawthorne. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If they tell you that it's expired, you can just tell them that you don't believe that time exists. <laughs> 
Well, you you kind of you know what they are though, right? They're like this this sort of the the tank that you float in that neutralizes as much as possible all of the sensations that you would normally associate with your external environment, right? Like you're immersed in total darkness, the temperature around you is the same as your own body. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. I actually haven't done it. Uh, the effects of gravity have been relieved by your own buoyancy, right? I mean, gravity still exists, but there's a thousand pounds of salt in the water. So the the water, you're so buoyant ah, in the water. You barely that you, notice. Yeah, yeah. It's, and also, it really makes your eyes burn, I think, is the, the only <laughs> one thing about it that's weird. Okay. Uh, yeah. But okay, anyway, Ed, what if we were able to put you in the most perfect sensory deprivation tank? One where you had absolutely no sensory input whatsoever. It was just you, alone, adrift with your innermost thoughts. That sounds horrifying. <laughs> I guess depends I have on... next to no interest in that. It depends on if you like fair. your own brain or not. I would do it if I could be with someone else's thoughts, not my own. Totally fair. <laughs> it's very revealing about your brain, Ed. All right. But it's all hypothetical. This is just a thought experiment, I okay? I hope so. So let's pretend we're going to do that. Here, here's the question. Imagine yourself in one of these terrifying total deprivation tanks. Wait, wait. <laughs> let's get creepier. Let's get creepier. Let's say that Kira and I actually kidnapped you, knocked you out, threw you in there without you knowing it, and you just woke up. I would just like to state for the record this is Kira's idea and not mine. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> important for the thought experiment. You just wake up and you don't know when you got thrown in there. Is this a thought experiment or is this... <laughs> Surprise! We have a field trip. Yeah. Are these microphones even hooked up to anything? Is this all just a ruse to... This is this yeah, is an I, elaborate kidnapping if this is how it starts. You're a sensory deprivation tank now and this is the oh. lucid dream you're having. Okay. Anyway. All right, all right. All right. So you wake up suddenly and there's like no sense of anything. Would you be able to figure out what time it was? Or could you at least make like a reasonable guess? Uh, after I got over the shock of being knocked up and waking up, floating in just lonely nothingness? Yes. After that. No, I, I, no, there's no frame of reference. There's no metric that I could use to tell what time it is. Well, it turns out you might surprise yourself. Even without any external stimulus, there is a chance that you could harbor a pretty decent guess as to what time of day it was, or how much time had passed since your ruthless kidnappers had put you in the sensory deprivation <laughs> tank. <laughs> We're so ruthless. And that is thanks to something known as your internal clock, a sense of time stamped into almost every one of the cells in your body. Okay, so I think I see what you're getting at. Like, I might be able to get a decent guess together based on points I could identify within my own body. For example, how hungry I was might tell me how long it's been since I ate, or uh, how sleepy I was might uh, tell me how long I've been awake. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Like, essentially, your body has developed something known as a circadian rhythm, which is basically just the conglomeration of all the biological processes within your body that display some sort of rhythmic oscillating 24-hour cycle or pattern. And these processes run consistently and predictably, even in the face of sudden changes like flying to the other side of the world, or in this case, being plunged unexpectedly into a super sensory deprivation tank. On the surface, it seems relatively straightforward, right? Our bodies have a 24-hour cycle because the Earth has a 24-hour cycle. We want to sync up our daily activities with the presence of light from the sun when the world is warm and safe and it's easier to see things. By staying in beat with this natural pattern of sunlight, our brains know how to time the release of hormones that control our hunger and our metabolism, when to repair and regenerate cells, and when to produce melatonin to make you sleepy. Oh, and of course, when to secrete stress chemicals like cortisol. Mm, secreting. <laughs> 
And you know, humans are not the only creatures that have figured this out. Most plants, animals, fungi, and even cyanobacteria operate on 24-hour cycles, taking advantage of the sunny hours to do things like make energy through photosynthesis or perform at peak physical strength to gather food and, you know, using the dark, less useful hours to do things like repair their cells and renew the body. But when you dig into the biology of circadian rhythms, it actually gets a little more complicated. It turns out that a true circadian rhythm is powered by more than common sense. We have these convenient 24-hour biological patterns, not because of the way that sun cycles through our environment, but because of the fact that the cycle of day and night we experience is the same as what our ancestors experienced. In other words, it was evolutionarily advantageous to coordinate daily biological processes with the Earth's natural rhythms. So those organisms that happened to be born with a 24-hour circadian rhythm survived and had a bunch of babies, and that's us. And the other ones just died? Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's how evolution works. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> just clarify. If your circadian rhythm was 30 hours, like, sorry, you're not having yeah, any that's babies. Rough. That's rough. Or like a, a two-hour circadian rhythm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You'd be hungry all the time. Yeah. No, I don't know. Okay, but just to make it a little more complicated, the timing of circadian cycles is not set in stone. Although your body would repair cells and release hormones and get hungry in a 24-hour pattern, whether you lived in a wide open field or raised in a sensory deprivation tank, changes to your environment will affect when this 24-hour cycle starts. That seems like some conflicting information there. What kind of changes... Okay, I see your point. We did just, like, contradict ourselves seven times. Well, let's sort out the criteria a biological rhythm must meet in order to be considered truly circadian. First off, the process must run on a consistent schedule, even when the plant or animal is exposed to constant darkness or constant light. So when people have isolated themselves in complete darkness or, you know, with, like, a small artificial light, their natural circadian cycle did stretch out to about 25 hours instead of 24, but it's still, like, pretty close. But it turns out that their lowest body temperature still occurred around 4.30 a.m. Their greatest cardiovascular and muscle strength still peaked around the vicinity of, you know, 5 p.m. And they still had the best concentration skills around 10 o'clock in the morning, all without the presence of the sun and its daily cycle. And, of course, those facing such kinds of extended periods of isolation also started to completely lose their minds. But that is a story for another time. Something you really have to look forward to Something in your that we can have in our, tank. Again, in our, our hypothetical tank. Hypothetical. Right. It's entirely over. hypothetical. You can read about that in Ed's new memoir coming out in <laughs> nine to ten months. How I Got Kidnapped for Science. Can I ask why cardiovascular and muscle strength peak at 5 p.m.? What is going on at 5 p.m., that's to important. You chase down your dinner. I have I no mean, idea. I usually schedule all my all my uh, ritual combat for around that time. I don't <laughs> well, know if everyone know, else does, but they, they know, probably do. They know that they, your cells know that that's when you get off of work and that's when you're going to the gym. No, I, that's what everyone does after work. Yeah, it's what I do after work, obviously. It's not like I go home and read books on my bed and don't move for four <laughs> hours. Definitely peak physical strength. All right. The point is, is that the biological cycles that are truly circadian are going to be the ones that remain intact even without the sun cycle to guide us. And the second important criterion, circadian rhythms are also entrainable. That means that the timing of these processes can be reset by exposure to environmental stimuli, like exposure to sunlight or warm temperatures. So you mean your body can adjust its circadian rhythms to match up with what's going on in the environment? Like if if I travel between different time zones on a plane, uh, suddenly the sun's coming up six hours earlier, my body adapts to that. 
Yeah, yeah. Our circadian cycles will actually go to great lengths to synchronize with the daylight hours in whatever new location we take ourselves to. And you're probably actually quite familiar with what it feels like to go through a shift in circadian timing. It's that sleepy and somewhat hungover feeling that we like to call jet lag. The entrainable nature of circadian processes is both a blessing and a curse for those of us with seasonal affective disorder, which is kind of like a months-long compounded jet lag. The lack of sunlight during the winter in the Pacific Northwest can make it very hard to regulate the timing of circadian cycles, but the sensitivity to light exposure means that spending time in front of like a sunlamp every morning can alleviate quite a lot of symptoms without drugs or more serious therapies. So the important thing to note here is that your daily circadian cycle does not stretch or shrink no matter how much sunlight you're exposed to. So if you change time zones multiple times, your brain would still do its best to adjust the timing of your daily cycle so that the beginning of your day and your cycle matched up with the first hour of sunlight that you had been exposed to. So if I'm getting this right, the length of my circadian rhythm is is non-negotiable, but the timing mm-hmm. is. Right. Yeah, exactly. The timing is very sensitive. And that's why you may have heard doctors talk about how important it is to expose yourself to sunlight during the first hour you're awake, especially for those of us in the Pacific Northwest in the winter, or to like put down your light-emitting phone at bedtime. Your circadian cycles are constantly trying to adjust and like sync up correctly with the hours the sun is supposedly in the sky. But since the the length of your rhythms can't stretch out, if your brain thinks it's sunny at midnight when you're like actually scrolling through Instagram in bed, your body will still be in serious sleep mode at 7 a.m. when you're supposed to be getting up for work. Makes sense. I feel personally attacked by some of this, actually. <laughs> I know. Yeah. As I was typing this. It makes this. too much sense. <laughs> We're ruining yeah. every, all your favorite activities. This is actually were, a confessional show. There were a lot of things when I was researching for this show that I was like, I don't really want to know this. Right. Like, no. No. <laughs> now, I have to, now I have to know. It has to change things. I know. All this stuff about circadian rhythms I'm feeling kind of guilty about. <laughs> I'm like the, yeah, I'm a textbook example of how not to approach this. (laughs) All right. Well, there's a third characteristic that makes processes truly circadian. And that is that the body will compensate for external temperature differences in order to keep the cycles timed correctly. I'm, I'm missing. What is this one? What does that mean? So, so the metabolic processes in our bodies, like moving proteins around in cells or breaking down sugars to create energy, they increase in speed as temperature increases, simply because it's easier to move molecules around when it's warm. You can see this in real life if you think about how much faster sugar dissolves when you dump it into a mug of hot water versus a mug of ice water. But this fluctuation in speed as the day gets lighter and therefore warmer could wreak havoc on the timing of your daily rhythms. So the body naturally compensates for the temperature changes. That's, you know, to keep the timing of your processes consistent throughout the day. And just to clarify, the reason why it could wreak havoc is if you think about heat speeding up molecules. Well, what are your body? Well, your body is made of molecules and all its processes are based on all the molecular stuff going inside there. So if those molecules sped up when the temperature got warmer, like during the middle of the day, and then slowed down during night, that, that'd be weird. Like you might not really be able to be as efficient or as effective yeah. as your body wants it to be. Does that, are we, are we? So what we're saying is that circadian processes don't respond to temperature. Right. They, no, or, or not they, right. Well, no, you're right. Sorry, not right. Not right. Oh. They do, but they they compensate. 
Hmm. How do I explain this? Okay, here's here's an okay analogy. Your circadian rhythm is like a 24-hour song, right? And external stimulus like light, like temperature, like other things that we'll discuss later in this show, they can change like when you press play on the tape recorder, right? So like when does that 24-hour song start playing? What this is actually talking about, like the compensation, is that because your body's made of molecules and molecules just move around faster when it's hot – during the day when your body like naturally gets hot because the sun is shining on it or you're standing on concrete or whatever, that could cause all your metabolic processes to f- happen faster, which in our analogy just means that like if your song is going at 110 beats per minute, then like it gets really hot and then all of a sudden your song is going at like 200 beats per minute. And it sounds minute. terrible. And it sounds terrible. And it also means that it's that's going to make your song way shorter, right? And your body like has to figure out how to keep the song at exactly 24 hours long. Right. So what it does is it artificially slows it down. Does that make sense? This is making... So the heat causes your molecules <laughs> to move faster and your processes to move faster and your body responds by slowing the process down. So even though the molecules are moving at a faster rate... Your body is like, hold on. It's like it's like all the musicians just drank a bunch of caffeine and they're like, we want to go really fast now. And I mean, actually, like quite literally, that's almost what's happening. And then the conductor, which is your, I don't know, right, <laughs> your yeah. master clock is like, okay, we're going to just calm it, it down. down. Follow my baton. We're going to keep going the speed we always go. The conductor is getting paid for 24 hours. He needs to pad it out <laughs> to 24 hours. Everybody comes in hot to try. <laughs> yeah. Then we're going to have to slow things down later uh-huh. on. So yes. oh, I think I'm beginning to uh-huh. see this. So our bodies have circadian processes. They're maintainable in lieu of external stimuli. Yes. And guess what, guys? We have our giant, big human brains to thank for all of this. That's not a surprise. I thank my brain for everything. So long, brain, and thanks for all the fish. In humans, the circadian rhythm is possible because of a group of neurons known as the superchiasmatic nuclei. This so-called master clock of the brain sits just above the spot where your optic nerves meet. This is a handy place for a clock that tells the time of day, since the optic nerves are constantly sending information to your brain about the patterns and wavelengths of light that's coming into your eyes. The suprachiasmatic nuclei helps keep time for all the different parts of the body that have different functions at different times of day. And that turns out to be a whole lot of body parts, you know, like the kidney, the pancreas, your skeletal muscles, your lungs, your liver, your adrenal gland and skin, just to name a few. Although each of these organs do have ways of keeping track of time on their own, the suprachiasmatic nuclei behaves like, you know, the guy on the Viking ships that reminds everybody when to row? Reminds kindly, kindly. with a whip and a chain and a promise. It's just a firm suggestion. (laughs) That's right. So wait, can can we back up here? My organs can tell time on their own. That yeah, they're very smart. I don't see how that's possible. I understand the big uh, brain clock, the super charismatic uh, nuclei. Uh, it's so charming. That yeah, it really is. Um, that makes sense to me. It's getting input through my eyes. It's mm-hmm. getting light. Mm-hmm. All this other, all this other business. But my, uh, but my other organs. My my liver has no idea where the sun is. It, <laughs> it doesn't have any eyeballs. They speak for your own liver. <laughs> does your Does your liver have eyeballs? I mean, I don't know. I haven't looked at it. It's a good point. But I don't want to. I don't want to say. Sometimes it. when you stare into the liver, it begins to stare back. <laughs> <laughs> profound. Well, right, in the case of the superchiasmatic nuclei in your brain, the sun, yes, that is a big deal when it comes to tracking time. But 
that is not the case for all of the cells in your body because you don't actually need external stimuli to tell you what time of day it is. You actually have something called clock genes. Bum, ba, dum, bum. The discovery of clock genes is actually kind of an interesting story. It was the 1970s, and U.S. geneticists Ron Kanopka and Seymour Benzer were experimenting with randomly mutating the genes of fruit flies to see how it changed their behavior. They noticed that of 2,000 mutated individual flies, the vast majority had traditional 24-hour circadian cycles with 12 hours of activity and 12 hours of rest. But a few of the fruit flies didn't follow the same pattern. One fly cycled through the activity and rest periods every 19 hours, one cycled every 28 hours, and one seemed to follow no pattern at all. Further study revealed that in all of these three anomalous individuals, the mutations that changed their DNA all occurred on a particular gene within the X chromosome. Genes are essentially blueprints for how to build proteins and other molecules that make up all the cells in our body. When the blueprint gets messed up, you can imagine the molecules that they code for, are, they don't get built correctly, if they're built at all. So the researchers knew that this particular gene that had become mutated in the fruit flies that, you know, had all these like wacky daily cycles must be related to a protein that helps the body keep track of time. So they named this protein the period gene since mutating it altered the length of time that the fly spent in their activity and rest periods. Eventually, it was discovered that fruit flies with no discernible pattern to their circadian cycles had two traits in common. First, they produced period proteins at random times, whereas regular flies ramped up or slowed down their production of these proteins in predictable 24-hour-long patterns. Second, the genetic weirdo flies also had mutations in another gene. Since these particular flies seem to have, like, no sense of the time of day whatsoever, researchers named it the timeless gene. And in the mid-1990s, it was discovered that the proteins made by the period gene and the timeless gene were, in fact, interacting with one another. These proteins were continuously being made inside cells at a pretty steady rate. And at some point, the cell seemed to reach a saturation level. But it was only ever when there was an overabundance of both the proteins, that's the period and the timeless proteins, and when that occurred, it somehow signaled to the DNA to taper off its total protein production. Then the levels of period and timeless proteins hanging out in the cell would steadily decline until at some point, about 24 hours after the whole production process started, the cycle would begin all over again. But wait, that's a negative feedback loop. That Bingo. The presence of a bunch of protein causes them, the cells to produce less proteins. I remember you guys talking about this in the first episode of the season with the wolves and deer. Um, it's like how the heater in your house works. The warmer it gets, the less work the heater is actually doing. Yeah. Oh, I love when people learn things from us. It makes me feel like this is all worthwhile. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 exactly. It's loops within loops within loops. The production of period and timeless proteins is a great example of a biological process that follows a negative feedback loop pattern. So what do these fruit flies have to do with my, my eyeballed liver? <laughs> Good question. It turns out that your liver cells, and in fact, most of the cells in your body, also have period and timeless genes. Admittedly, the way that they function is a teeny tiny bit different than the fruit flies, but it is still similar enough that we can use the fruit fly example to do all kinds of research about how our own cells work. In case anyone wonders why we use fruit flies, it's because they have a life cycle, I think, of like a couple of days. Yeah, so you can really study them. Whereas, yeah, it's harder. It's harder, harder to with humans with things through years. a lot of generations. There's also some litigation issues there. <laughs> right, right, right. 
But anyway, so your cells are constantly making period and timeless proteins, and this process happens at a very predictable rate. It's kind of like, you know how a grandfather clock keeps track of time by, like, counting the swings of its pendulum? Any cell in your body, including those in your weird eyeballed liver, can get a pretty good idea of how much time has passed based solely on how many of these proteins have accumulated in a day. To see them at work, let's go ahead and zoom in on a human body cell. It actually kind of resembles the human body as a whole. It has these tiny organ-like structures called organelles that are floating around in sort of, I don't know, all this squishy jello-like stuff that we call cytoplasm. That basically exactly like my body. I'm all jello. Just full just, of jello. Just eyeballs floating in jello. For, for those of you that can't see Ed, he actually is just a, a talking jello mold, which is also why his liver has eyeballs. <laughs> I'm actually, it's very handy to study me. I'm completely translucent. <laughs> and you jiggle. It's a bright blue. And he jiggles. Anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. We derail. In the middle of the cell, there's a well-protected command center, kind of analogous to our brain, called the nucleus. All of our neatly folded up DNA, which, again, is, you know, the blueprint for building all the other molecules in our body, hangs out in the nucleus. Out in the jello-like cytoplasm that is Ed, apparently, this is where all the protein building actually gets done. And it is here in the jello that our own period and timeless proteins build up throughout the day. Sometime around the early evening, once their concentration gets high enough, those proteins, they bind to one another. The resulting mega molecule is just the right shape to fit through the protective nuclear membrane, giving it access to the nucleus of the cell. Once inside, their presence disables the period and timeless genes, preventing the synthesis of any more period and timeless proteins during that 24-hour period. This is essentially the culmination of that negative feedback loop that you talked about earlier, Ed. And then a few hours later, enzymes working inside the nucleus actually break apart these coupled megamolecule proteins, and they break them down. And once they're all dismantled, well, guess what? The period and timeless genes, they're free. And they can get back to work making, hey, more period and timeless proteins. And guess what? The entire circadian cycle starts over again. The key to all of this, this process happens over and over and over again in a nice, predictable 24-hour pattern within the vast majority of the cells in our body. Okay, and because the length of this building up and breaking down proteins process is so predictable, our cells have sort of an awareness of the time of day based on how far along they are in that process? Basically, yeah, that's it. But there's more. Since this initial research, many other molecules have also been discovered that happen to influence and change the behavior of these period and timeless proteins. And they all have really cool names. Like the clock protein, which... stands for the ridiculous title of Circadian Locomotor Output Cycles Kaput, and which plays a role, it it spells clock, and which plays a role in activating the synthesis of period and timeless genes at the beginning of each 24-hour cycle. There's also the double-time enzyme, which makes the song go really fast and prevents the period protein from building up too fast by rendering it unable to enter the nucleus until the concentration of proteins in the cytoplasm is just right. And my favorite, there's this other molecule called 
a cryptochrome. Now we are talking. A cryptochrome sounds awesome. Yeah, like, a sci-fi movie, I think right? you have to say it like, cryptochrome. Cryptochrome. <laughs> like it's a metal song? Yeah. the crypt- We're talking cryptochromes and mega molecules here. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I know. Actually, when I was writing the mega molecules part, I was trying to think of like how I could make it into an analogy of some sort of like Power Rangers. Because like, didn't the Power Rangers, didn't they like, they turned into like mega morphing Power Rangers. Oh, right. <laughs> Their whole no, they were mighty morphing. That was oh. uh, uh, they had a megazord. Now let's really explain to everybody what's going on with actual cryptochromes. So with cryptochromes, the one in your body, we are back to talking about light-sensitive time molecules. So by adjusting the whole protein synthesis process, these little guys are what help your body adapt to a new time zone or just keep up with seasonal changes to daylight hours. We don't actually fully understand how cryptochromes go about affecting circadian cycles in humans, but we do know how it works in fruit flies. Thanks, fruit flies. Here we are again. (laughs) And as we mentioned earlier, the mechanisms that make circadian rhythms work seem to be pretty similar between fruit flies and humans, so we can learn a lot from them. All right, let's see if we can explain how the cryptochromes work in our fruit fly friends. So the beginning of a waking day is defined by when the period and timeless genes within the fly's cell's nuclei are activated and begin producing the period and timeless proteins. And it turns out that the light-activated cryptochrome proteins are what allow for this production to begin in the first place. The key is exposure to light, in particular, blue light. Here's why. When light appears to us humans as different colors, let's say like red light and blue light, it means that those photons, which are always oscillating up and down in a wave pattern, are traveling in waves of different lengths. Red has a much longer wavelength, while blue is rather short. Shorter wavelengths also mean that the light our eyes perceive as blue holds much more energy than the longer red waves. So cryptochromes are typically activated by the presence of this higher energy blue light around the time of day that the timeless and period proteins are still busy guarding the DNA inside the cell's nucleus, keeping them from making more of themselves. Blue light also happens to have the right amount of energy that when it hits a cryptochrome protein, it changes that protein's molecular structure. The cryptochrome changes to be exactly the right shape to bind to the timeless and period proteins, rendering them inoperable. They can no longer guard the timeless and period genes within the DNA strand. So protein synthesis restarts and the day begins anew. Okay, wait. So I think I've made a connection here. If blue light activates cryptochromes and the cryptochromes are essential to our bodies knowing that our wake cycle is beginning... That's why we're supposed to not have blue light from our cell phones or laptops before you go to sleep. Does getting blue light out of sync with uh, the 24-hour circadian rhythm somehow mess it all up? Bingo. Sleep and circadian rhythms are absolutely linked. Disruptions in either process will affect the other. So, you know, if you mess with activating your cryptochromes, you risk messing up the cascade of circadian-based biological processes that follow, sleep being one of them. Let's go back to the fruit flies for a second. If these little guys are exposed to blue light later in the day when the sun like would typically have gone down already and activity of their light-activated cryptochromes should have fallen, it sets their whole circadian clock back so that the body believes that it's earlier than it actually is, right? It's kind of like in their 24-hour song, I don't know, there was some sort of skip in the record and they like... Now it's not going to end for a long time. But if the blue light exposure happens in like the very early morning hours or very, very late hours, depending on how you look at it, 
the body thinks that the day has already started and the clock gets set ahead. It's kind of like the song gets turned on early. It's like you're playing a prank on your internal clock. You're fooling it into thinking that its circadian cycle is in a different place in time than it actually is. Yeah, except Hilarious you're, you're like, haha, I'm playing a prank on you, which is actually just playing a prank on me. Right, yeah. <laughs> I am the butt of my own joke here. <laughs> Literally. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that when humans stare at blue light sources like, you know, our phones, computers and TVs after the sun has gone down, that our internal clocks are similarly set forward or backwards like the fruit flies. Either way this adjustment goes, you can see how it could be really exhausting for your body and really confuse the times that you naturally want to wake up or fall asleep, making it harder and harder to do so at a regular rate. So if you're staring at your computer all night, you're basically just giving yourself jet lag over and over and over again, since your body's constantly having to adjust to what time of day it, it thinks it is outside. Yeah, I mean... I mean, this, this isn't is... going to stop me from doing it. I'm still going to do it. When I, I leave here, that is what I will do. Calling it jet lag, though, I think because you, everyone has the connotation that jet lag is horrible. Like, maybe calling it jet lag is what we all need to... It does sound less appealing right now, but yeah. I will still be... This is how I'll be falling asleep tonight. <laughs> With a phone in one hand right. and a laptop in the other. Maybe there should be, like, alerts on your phone that go on at a certain time of night that says, oh, you are getting jet lag! I think there are. I think you oh. can totally set that. Well, I just meant that, like, told you you were getting jet lag, so you were like, oh, I don't want that. No, jet lag is horrible. Yeah, you'd be like, oh, it's terrible. Just <laughs> shut me down before you get jet lag. Jet lag doesn't sound that bad now, actually, in comparison. If that's what I'm oh, experiencing no. every day from yeah. falling asleep mm. watching Netflix or whatever, then <laughs> then bring on jet lag because right. that's just how I live my life. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This you is can not take a... it either way, couldn't you? Totally. This is not a medical yeah. advice podcast. Yeah, no. just... <laughs> jet lag doesn't sound that bad. I'll do it all day. I already do. <laughs> If it means I get to figure out what happens at the end of Ozark season two or whatever. Anyway. Anyways. As if this isn't complicated enough, there are other ways that your circadian clock resets itself besides responding to light, which I guess is good news for those of us with seasonal affective disorder and bad news for those of us who don't like following schedules. Right. So what if I fall into both of those categories? <laughs> then I think you're just like the rest of us. It in the just Pacific comes Northwest. out and break even. Yeah. You break even. But you, the prize is jet lag. <laughs> Congratulations. So you've, you, just, you just keep winning. <laughs> Over every day, Ed is winning. So because our bodies are so smart and also so intent on keeping us alive, they're also capable of shifting our circadian rhythms to match the availability of the resources we have. Food is the really big one. When mice with normal circadian cycles were only allowed access to food for four hours a day at a time that they would normally be sleeping, they quickly adjusted several circadian biological processes and began waking up and becoming active just before the time that they expected the food to arrive. There's also some evidence that social interaction can play a part as well. Although this has yet to be proven in humans, a very comprehensive study done with honeybees showed that access to the hive community and the timing of that community's daily activities were actually stronger contributors to circadian cycle timing than was sunlight exposure. What's more, when individual bees were isolated in the lab, they continued to align their rhythms with the social activity patterns, even when exposed to conflicting hours of ambient light. It may be that in the future we find that social activity or some factor that we haven't even thought of yet is just as important to circadian rhythms in humans as the presence of light and resources. 
So what happens when you do mess up your circadian rhythm? I'm, I'm told there are consequences, but uh, are there any serious consequences? Because being tired is just, again, that's just a thing I do. <laughs> right. Are there any real consequences? Because that one's, that doesn't scare me. Oh, yeah. Sorry to say there are plenty. Maintaining a regular circadian rhythm is linked to much of what we consider to be our sense of well-being. Numerous studies have shown that imbalances in a person's circadian patterns from irregular sleep, inadequate light exposure, or any other desynchronizing activity can lead to awful things like depression, obesity, and even diabetes. And it seems like every year we learn that the circadian system has even further reaching implications. It makes sense because your circadian rhythm directs the processes that keep your body running smoothly, even like the ones we don't think about. The reason clock proteins are found in so many of your cells, even in your weird eyeballed liver, is that most of your organs are scheduled to perform different tasks at different times of the day. And all these processes are synchronized like a great bodily symphony. Take, for example, the digestive process. During the day when you're more likely to be eating food, well... I guess I eat food at night, too. But when you're supposed to be eating food, mm-hmm. well, your pancreas is pumping out insulin and your liver is producing digestive bile. But if the super chiasmatic nuclei, you know, that master clock of your body, thinks it's day when it's actually night, it could send the message to the liver and the pancreas to start working when they're not really needed, leaving your organs tired and your insulin stores depleted. Then later when you do eat a big meal, you don't have the proper tools to fully digest the food and store the extra sugar for later. When your body is ill-equipped for the tasks it's facing, well, that's when injury and disease can crop up as a result. Yeah, research is showing more and more that disruptions to the circadian rhythms have long-term consequences, as more serious diseases can crop up later in life. So there are real consequences, and it's probably best that I don't mess up my internal clock too much. If you can help it, yes. I can't. You can't. Well, <laughs> then you just, you're okay with the consequences. I mean, well, that Except is, the consequences yeah. of your choices, then. It's a binary choice, and I guess I, yeah, I've made clear what I'm choosing. We started off talking about time, and I, th- I feel like we, we've moved from time, and we've gone to attacking my uh, eating, <laughs> reading, and sleeping habits. I mean, you and me both. Everyone in this room, I think. Um, but that's a good point. We started all of this talking about time, and is time a loop? Is time linear? How do we experience time? Is time real? Does your understanding, now that, that we've talked about all of this, their understanding of how biological processes help us humans perceive the passage of time, does that give you any more insight into how you might define time itself? It, it's something. I Obviously, I feel like defining time is still something of an unanswerable mystery, but understanding the way our bodies give us sort of cues that we use to track and measure time, it makes sense. It does sort of beg the question, do our bodies have all these rhythms and cycles and processes in order to follow some external thing that's time? Or do we only think there's such a thing as time because our bodies are following all these rhythms and cycles? Ah, it's like the chicken and the egg. It's totally a chicken and egg. It's a great point. Well, you might say that your sense of time does rely entirely on the biological processes within your body, right? Because if you don't have those to tell you what time it is, how would you even know the time was moving in any direction at all? And that might lead you to wonder then if time even exists at all. Is this breaking your brain yet? So going back to the the sensory deprivation tank we're planning on imprisoning me in. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if I had no way to perceive my internal cycles related to the outside world, um, I might not even consider time to be passing at all. I might just be a goldfish just every now and then. I'm just making note of my own existence. 
I think it's really um, assumptive of you to think that goldfish have no awareness of the passing of time. Do we know that? Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I think that that's Goldfish, their... meanwhile, are like, they're like solving like the philosophical mysteries of the universe. And they're like, everyone thinks that, that is the joke around goldfish, no though, concept right? Of... That they don't, that they live. Right. I was under the impression that their their brains reset every, uh, every you know, X number of seconds or whatever. I'll get back to you. All I'm saying is that we shouldn't make assumptions about what the, what it's like to be another animal. The goldfish are definitely pleased they finally have a human sticking up for them. <laughs> After all this time. And such a prominent one, too. The reason I've been put on the earth. That's what that goldfish pin you're wearing is all about. I get it. No, no, but I think you are on to something here, Ed. You know, I mean, whether you're in the, if you're in the sensory deprivation tank or if you've got a goldfish brain, without any context as to what the cycles inside your body are telling you, you know, in the greater construct of human-based time notation, well... The, the days wouldn't be days, the weeks wouldn't be weeks, they would just simply be your existence, and you would have no way to compare them to anything else. Ooh, this is getting crazy deep. I think, I think we're going to have to pick this conversation back up for the next episode, because um, this episode has gotten long and my brain is tired. You know, that's right, that's right. So join us next time on Everything is Interesting, where we'll discuss the very nature of time itself. What is it? I don't know. Does it exist? We don't know. If it does, how does it progress? Nobody you know, knows. Is it a line, a loop? Who knows? Does it stop and start every time the universe gets sucked into a black hole and then explodes again in a big bang? We are going to talk about that. <laughs> oh, it's just the easy things next time. <laughs> That's right. We'll be back in the studio with our friend Ed Curtis to explore what we think we know so far and where we think the research is headed. Ed, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Super big thanks to our production team here at X-Ray. Amalia Boyles, and our editor, Jenny Alpa. We could not do this without you. You guys are awesome. And most of all, thank you for tuning in and for loving science. We love you guys. All of our episodes are available on our website, everythingisinteresting.org, and you can download this and every episode of Everything is Interesting on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also on the X-Ray Podcast site, xraypod.com. This has been a production of X-Ray FM and is brought to you by Science Project, the Portland-based nonprofit working to bring approachable science education to everyone. Until next time, I'm Kira Kleenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. And this is Everything is Interesting on X-Ray FM, where radio and science is yours.